What I did this morning was attempt to hone in on a phrase, one two-word phrase, my law. It's found in Jeremiah 31, 33. And so we had looked at the wider context last week, drilled down just to analyze the phrase in its Jeremiah 31 context, and then asked the rest of Scripture to help us interpret what that phrase means. There's various ways you can do that. You can do that by looking up the phrase elsewhere, my law, which uh, I referenced all the verses in Jeremiah that use the phrase six times. Every single time except 31, 33, we'll just put that one on the shelf. I think it's one of the times as well. But all the other times, it's clear. It's talking about a law that God himself has revealed and written. All the other places is a law that God has, himself has written in the past. Jeremiah 31, 33, I think it's talking about God himself having a law that's going to be written on hearts. And he's speaking primarily during the time between the two coven, comings of our Lord, the days of the new covenant, the, the days of the inaugurated new covenant, the days in which we live in. So the phrase, my law, you can, there's, so one way you can study that is to do other, find other places where the phrase my law is used. But you can also broaden the context there and go, oh, he's talking about the new covenant as well. So last week we looked at Ezekiel 36, because that talks about the new covenant without using the phrase new covenant. And we connected it to some places in the New Testament. And I tried to show you last week why, how, why and how I believe the new covenant applies to Gentiles as well, because the promise of the Messiah that would be the messenger of this covenant uh, was to bring light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. He's, he's brought the two into one, those who were near the unbelieving Jews, those who are far off, unbelieving Gentiles, have been brought together in one body in, in Christ. So the Old Testament, though it uses the language house of Israel, house of Judah, in the context of the promise of the new covenant, uh, if you read it with more prophetic, broader lenses on, not that I, I'm a prophet, but if you hear all the prophets together and Moses, you realize that, ah, this new covenant, though it's promise to the house of Israel and house of Judah, it's actually going to include Gentiles uh, as well. And we looked at the various blessings of them. But we honed in on the my law. My law, I will write my law on their hearts. I will put it in their minds. So another way, other than just looking at the phrase, to try to determine it is the concept of writings. Does God write uh, his law someplace else in the scriptures. Now, in one sense, the entirety of the scriptures can be called the law of God, the revelation, the written revelation of God. Um, but in another sense, we can make distinctions uh, because we must make distinctions. Otherwise, we can't make sense of the Bible, especially the New Testament. Unless we distinguish, the New Testament doesn't make sense because there's anti-law texts and there's pro-law texts. So unless we make 
distinctions, unless we distinguish between certain types and functions of law in the Old Testament, we're going to be a mess when it comes to the New Testament. So we don't want to be a mess when it comes to the New Testament. We're already a mess enough in and of ourselves. We want to distinguish. So I sought to distinguish. And when you distinguish carefully between the law of Moses and, let's say, the law of God, when I say the law of God, my hearers, you already know what I mean by that. I mean the Ten Commandments because there's something unique about that which was written by the finger of God on stone tablets. It's not the same as that which Moses wrote on whatever Moses wrote on. And we know that by the fact that that which uh, the stone tablets were actually put in the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the, the book of the law... Uh, was put beside it, that which Moses wrote. And remember, a few weeks ago, I even distinguished between um, the Ten Commandments functioning prior to Sinai, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and then you had tabernacle laws between Sinai and the Promised Land. Remember that? And then you had judicial and some other temple laws that were to be obeyed in the land. If you want to do a phrase search in the writings of Moses, do this phrase search, in the land. Historically, this is why, uh, especially after the Reformation, the 17th century guys distinguished between moral, ceremonial, and judicial laws found in the Old Testament. Our confession of faith makes that threefold Distinction. I think it's grounded in Scripture itself and can be mined out of Scripture. So if you don't distinguish, you're going to say things like a, a, a friend of mine who's absent from the body and present with the Lord actually wrote one time. I kind of chuckled. He said, and I said this earlier, he said, um, um, I have a hunch. My hunch is that Moses, what Jeremiah meant was that God's going to write the entirety of the Mosaic law on the hearts of those under the new covenant. And I'm going, actually, knowing me, I smirked sinfully because that is a pretty easy argument to undo. Uh, it is very clear in the New Testament that that which is unique to the Mosaic institution or the Old Covenant has served its purpose. Read the book of Hebrews. It's also clear from the New Testament that some, there's some sort of continuity still going on there. You can't be utterly antinomian. You have to be, in a qualified sense, antinomian, and a qualified sense, pronomian, because there are pro-law statements in the New Testament as well. Matter of fact, you know, the Psalms, oh, how I love thy law. Is that, can that, can we say something like that as believers? In Christ, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ? Yes, we can, and we should, and we ought to. Do we mean by that, oh, how I love how I have to go through a priest and offer animal sacrifices three times a year and other times uh, weekly. Uh, oh, how I love that law. Is that what we mean by it? No, we don't mean. Why? Because we distinguish. We can still say, I love thy law. By the way, we sang, I love your law. 449, right? 
Uh, and we're only able to do that, I think, with a, uh, with a clean conscience because we're properly distinguishing. We're properly informed. So there's various ways to try to mine out the meaning of the my law statement. Just look at the phrase my law, number one. Uh, look at the what are the verbal actions that are going on there. I will write it in their minds. I will put it on their uh, in their hearts and put it in their mind. I will write God writing, Exodus 31, 18. God writing his law, Exodus 31, 18, on stone tablets by the finger of God. Jeremiah 31, 33, God writing his law on the hearts of people. 2 Corinthians 3, 3, um, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So you can look at the phrase, you can look at the verbal actions that are taking place there, and then you can go elsewhere in the Bible asking the question, does this language occur elsewhere, and would it inform our interpretation of the text? And I think it does. So remember, I read those three texts, Exodus 31.18, Jeremiah 31.33, and then 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, in order. I read them in order. Uh, last hour. So that actually brings me to the New Testament fulfillment uh, of this, I will write my law on their hearts. Does the New Testament itself uh, assume the promises of Jeremiah 31 are being applied now or explicitly state it? I think it does both. Matter of fact, if you read the epistles, you know how Quite often in Paul's epistles, he'll have doctrine for two or three chapters, and then he'll have a bunch of commands or imperatives. A lot of times the imperatives, well, they are always, they're just assuming ultimate ethical absolutes that impinge upon the Christians as brothers and sisters in visible communities we call local churches. They're a, what, the, what the commands do is they apply the moral law to a given situation. They just assume that which is written on our hearts and that which God wrote on stone tablets and, and, and use it. And sometimes they explicitly state it, sometimes not. So I'm rambling. I'm going to stop rambling. Let's look at the Bible finally. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This will be brief. It's just going to be introductory. There are many texts we could look at to prove that Jeremiah's prophecy of the abiding utility, that's a technical word meaning practical usefulness, the abiding utility of the Ten Commandments is being fulfilled under the New Covenant or in the New Covenant era. Many passages I think we can go to. Some are obvious to me and many others and clear. And so I want to look at at least two, not, not today, just introduce one. 2 Corinthians 3, we'll look at 3 3 in context. Then we'll look at Romans 13, 8 through 10. Something fascinating happens there. And maybe we'll look at Ephesians 6 2, because something fascinating happens there as well. But I won't tell you until next week. So let's look at 2 Corinthians. Here's 2 Corinthians 3 3, and we'll look at the context a little, uh, a little later. Clearly, this is Paul writing to, we would assume, both Jews and Greeks in Corinth because of the dispersion of the Jews at various times. 
uh, but also it's, it's, it's Corinth, okay? So it's ancient Rome, it's uh, Greece, it's very Gentile. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. Now, he doesn't say, this is an epistle of Christ written by Christ's amanuensis, secretary, Paul. He doesn't say that. You persons are an epistle of Christ. People are an epistle? That sounds weird. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. And what does of Christ mean? Authored by Christ? Owned by Christ? Good question. Ministered by us. Ah. Written. Now, stop. Do you hear Exodus 31.18? Do you hear Jeremiah 31.33? Written, not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Okay, a stony heart, heart of flesh. Do you hear Ezekiel 36 here as well? I think there's a cross-pollination going on here. Okay, I think Paul is, well, Paul's assuming the entire day of the Old Testament, obviously. But he uses language that we've heard before. In Exodus, uh, other places in the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses as well, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. This section where this verse occurs actually begins in verse 17 of chapter 2. And this section is an extended argument for the validity of Paul's ministry. So here's the apostle having to argue for the validity of his own ministry. It's a really sad situation. You know, some Christians say, I just, I don't want to be, you know, a Calvinist church or an Arminian church or a dispensational church or a Neo-Puritan church. I want to be a New Testament church. I remember hearing somebody a long time ago said, oh yeah, which one? Not very many good ones there. I mean, at least they, had, they all had, they had issues. Corinth had issues. One of their issues was they didn't respect the apostolic ministry of the apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. And so he had to defend himself. And so that's what he's doing here. In chapter 3, verse 1 in 2 Corinthians, he says this, do we begin again to commend ourselves? It's like Paul saying, do we have to do this? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Do we need somebody to write about us or do we need some of your people to write about us to convince you other people that you ought to listen to us? Do I need others outside to write? And It's basically uh, to, to write letters of commendation for me. Uh, his, his argument is, well, no, we don't. Paul, in this uh, passage, uses a metaphor depicting the Corinthians themselves as a letter written on his heart. That's in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2. And then in 3 verse 3, he uses a similar metaphor for a different purpose. Now, you are a, 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 a letter written on my heart. 
That's what Paul says, basically, in 2 Corinthians 3.2. Did he mean a physical? Like, how'd they do that? The Corinthians put Paul down, unzipped his chest cavity, and wrote a letter on his physical organ? Nobody, nobody wants to take it that way here, I hope, you know? So it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech. I have you on my heart, or you, you're, I love you, something like that. But then notice 3.3, similar metaphor for a different purpose, stating that the Corinthian believers are an epistle of Christ. Ah, the, the recipients of this epistle are actually an epistle of Christ ministered by us. What's he talking about there? Uh, is, is he saying what men call Second Corinthians is our ministry to you, which makes you an epistle of Christ? My wife went like that. No. Ministered by when? That's what I want to know. When did they minister something to these people? that caused them to now be identified as an epistle of Christ. I think if we read the book of Acts, we'd see in Acts chapter 18, when Paul went to, first went to Corinth. I think that's what he's talking about. So we could say this. You are an epistle, you Corinthian believers, are an epistle of Christ. Christ has done something to you, written something in you, and that we were the ministers of it. We were the servants. We brought the word. We didn't make it effectual, though. We can't do that. We can only deliver it. Paul delivered the gospel to them, and like the Lydia text, the Lord opened your hearts to understand what we said, so that In that sense, they're an epistle of Christ. Christ authored grace in their souls through the preaching of the gospel by Paul and those with him. You're an epistle of Christ, so that would mean Christians are an epistle of Christ. All believers are an epistle of Christ, ministered maybe not by the audible voice of an apostle, but by the words of Christ the apostle or the prophets, and through your parents, me, another pastor, whoever witnessed to you, and at the point at which you got saved. Everybody that's a believer of Christ is is an epistle of Christ in this sense, ministered by somebody. And here is what Paul says in description of this epistle of Christ, written not with ink, I think that's the way we ought to read it with that kind of a accentuation. Uh, written not with ink, but by the Holy Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, which that, that's already happened, but on, on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So you know what's going on here. Paul's defending himself, and he's basically saying this. He says, look, you, you know I'm the real McCoy. I'm not the false prophet because you can't deny what's happened to you. You're an epistle of Christ. Heaven tinkered with your soul in a way, heaven, capital H. Heaven tinkered with your soul. God did something through my preaching that altered your state of being and your existence 
And you went from being lost to being saved. You went from being blind to be able to see, from deaf to be able to be to be to hear the gospel and to embrace it. I can't do that. I can minister the word to you, but I can't make the word effectual in your heart. I can call you audibly to come to Christ, but I can't call you effectually to come to Christ. I can summons you to believe the gospel. I summons you now. I call you in the presence of God and his holy angels and his saints to believe the gospel. I can do all that. But I can't usher your soul into saving union with Christ. Only Christ can cause that to happen by his spirit. By the way, finger of God Spirit of God sometimes are used as synonyms. So that's very interesting that he's doing that. He's basically, he's arguing that something's happened to you that should, should, should cause you to conclude, yep, this is a real apostle of Christ. It's not a phonely, and it's not a phonely. It's not a phony, it's not a fake. Uh, it's, he's the real McCoy, as the saying goes. So that's just to introduce this. But listen, in verse 6, he uses the phrase, new covenant. We're going to look at that next week. Minister of, ministers are of the new covenant. So there's the phrase new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3. The phrase new covenant is used in Luke 22. This is the blood of the new covenant. The phrase new covenant is used in Jeremiah 31, 33. You think Paul's talking about the application of the benefits of the new covenant to the souls of elect now believers in Christ when he first brought the gospel to them? That's exactly what he's talking about. God wrote on their hearts. God tinkered with them. God did something to them. What did he do? He, he, he did what he said he was going to do when the Messiah comes. He gave them a new heart. He put a, the law on their mind. He wrote it on their hearts. He forgave them of their sins, and they were forever changed from the inside out. And the apostles saying, the inside out change by God wrought in your heart through the ministry of the words that I spoke proves that I'm the real, that I come from God, that I'm from from God. So uh, he's an evidentialist in one sense. Uh, the evidences of your life prove the validity of the apostle as sent by Christ, all in fulfillment of the promise of Jeremiah and Ezekiel of God uh, um, brought to them through the apostle uh, and, and others. So that's the introduction to that. Next week, we'll do an exegesis of it and show you more. But I, I think it should be clear by now, whatever Paul's doing here, it's connected to previous revelation. Paul's not saying God tried it one way with the Jews, didn't work. Forget the Jews, they're stubborn, as if us non-Jews are not stubborn. You know, um, I'm going to start it over with better people. No. Paul's connecting the fruits of his ministry with the prophetic oracles of the prophets from the Old Testament. He's saying this, the experience of grace in your heart, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. This is that which was promised. That's what Paul's doing there. And he's connecting his ministry with uh, being a minister of the new covenant. I remember hearing 
John MacArthur, one time they asked him, why do you, why do you preach so much from the New Testament? He said, because I'm a minister of the New Covenant. And one of my friends said, plus you signed a contract with Moody to preach through the entire New, New Testament. Minister of the New Covenant. That's what Paul says there. What does that mean? I speak words in line with what the prophets pro- promised, and in the broader sense, the entirety of the Old Testament, And God blesses them such that what he does can be called the writing of his law in your hearts. What he said he was going to do, he's done in you. And this this comes to sinners. It's not like we prepare for it. All right, I'm I'm going to try to be a little better this week so that finally God might write on my heart. Do I want him to write on my heart? Yeah, I want him to write on my heart. How can I prepare for that? I can, I can do better. Because, you know, the better you are, the more favorable he's going to be toward you. You know, people think that way. Um, it, really, it's not that way. We, we can't better ourselves. None of us, God didn't look down and say, you know what? You got a spark of goodness in you. I think I'll save you because you, you, got, you got what it takes. Now, some of you see who I'm pointing to. You're going, no, that's a bad example. All of us would be bad examples of that, right? We don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes. That's the it. That's our plight. That's our problem. We need the wind to blow our direction. John chapter 3. And the wind blows where he wishes. What is he talking about? Uh, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's a weird one. Genesis 1, 2. We need, we need the finger of God. We need the spirit of God. We need the, the hovering spirit who takes uh, creation and brings it to a better form. That's, that's what happens in, in, in Genesis 1. What do you think that's a prefigurement of? The Holy Spirit working on our hearts, bringing our jalopied creation to a better form, writing on our hearts, putting the thing in our minds, renewing us, refreshing us, invigorating us, giving us uh, the ability to interpret it, and then the desire to want to do it, and then the ability to actually do it. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Promise of the New Covenant, Ezekiel chapter 36. All this of course, requires God. We can read about it all we want, but unless God does this, none of us are saved. God does it. Therefore, some of us, hopefully all of us, one day, if we're not now, are saved by His grace. The truth came ministered to you. Somebody served it to you. God blessed it to the salvation of your soul. Whenever He did. But He did it. And this is what Paul's talking about there and what Jeremiah promises as well. So this should make us very thankful if we have this work, extra work, other than just creation, we should be thankful for God making us. Other than just providence, preservation, we should be thankful for God preserving us, giving us help. help, help. Uh, you know, in one sense, once God... Well, in a real sense, not one sense, in every sense. Once God makes us, he's committed to preserving us. And he can 
judge us prematurely in our eyes or let us live a long time and never save us and be just. He can do that. And he does that with some. My wife's going, say it. He doesn't do that with everyone, though. He brings them into being. He preserves them. And he says, stop. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. I'm going to change you. I'm going to bring you into this sphere of new creation. You're going to be partly renovated. And I'll promise to fully renovate you someday in the future. I'm going to, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to stop you in your tracks. You're going to squirm maybe for a while and feel guilty and horrible and all that stuff. But the lights will go on and you'll start to hear the trumpets blast and you'll see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as he says in, in 2 Corinthians 6, 4, 3, someplace over there. 4, thank you. Which, by the way, the light, uh, um, darkness, light, Spirit, Spirit was hovering over the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. You think 2 Corinthians 4 is connected maybe to creation? It's not a creation text. It's a new creation text. Just as, or similar to this, back in Genesis, on a different level, God does the same thing with sinners like us. And that should make us thankful. So we should, we should ask ourselves, well, if I should be thankful, and I should be, how do I express my thankfulness? Well, you knuckle under and do what he says, which is true. But I, I got chuckles. It's like, no, 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 that's not the Lord. We don't like knuckle under and do what he says. Sometimes we do need to knuckle under and do what he says, right? Because is it always in your heart just... Oh, I just love to obey Jesus all the time. I just kind of float around. Somebody reminded me, but I'm just bubbling, right? We're not always bubbling. Matter of fact, I don't even think I know. I don't think I've ever been bubbling. I don't even know what that means. We don't have, you know, wings and halos, and we're not floating. Sometimes we're not in Romans eight. We're in Romans seven at the end. There, remember, Paul agonizing on the one hand, the law is great and holy and just and good, but I'm all jacked up inside. I'm all messed up. Sometimes I do. I feel more, mess, more messed up. Other times I don't feel as me- Wretched man that I... You ever read that text? I think he's talking about... I really hope he's talking about our experience as Christians, and I know good and godly men, even that teach at the same seminary I do, have different views of it. But you know what? You can't always be right. They're wrong. It's Paul. It's a mature apostle, apostle writing about his experience. Simply because I don't want to sometimes doesn't mean I shouldn't. It means I should get on my face maybe and say, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to. Uh, nobody ever says this. I don't want to go to church. Something's more important, at least in my thinking right now. So I'm not going to do it. No, get on your face. Say, Lord, what happened with me? You're a sovereign over work and rest and worship. It's a done deal, you know. My, my weekly schedule is already made up by you. Thank you. I don't have to flip a coin. Church, no church. 
You know, work, no work. Tell your, tell your boss at work someday. By the way, I flipped a coin. You lost. I'm not working today. We don't do that because we know. It's God command. He made us to work and he commands us to work. He also commands us to rest and worship. So uh, we shouldn't try to act as if the Christian life is some over-eschatologized, euphoric, sinless existence. It isn't. It's warfare. Right? You've got to fight sometimes for holiness. And even then, it looks pretty ugly. But I'll take it over giving up. We don't give up. Uh, we fall down, but we, we, get, we get knocked down, but we don't get knocked out. Uh, we get up and brush our sinful selves off and say, Lord, I did it again. You ever done that to sin? I have. I used to yell at the top of my lungs at my weirdisms after initially getting created, uh, recreated, converted. Because I was having this warfare going on, and I screamed 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, I was driving a truck in Western Fresno County. I'm sure somebody drove by going, oh, that guy needs a nap. Because I'm beating on the steering wheel and on the dashboard, quoting scriptures to help me fight against this foreign thing that's still here, wretched man that I am. We should be very thankful. And may the Lord make us more thankful. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for doing only the work God can do, not only in creation and preservation, but in grace and renovation and preserving us in grace, even though we fight against it uh, way too often. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that Jesus is still a friend of sinners, even saved sinners who are adopted, who are children by grace. It's not as if when we rebel, we, we don't have a Savior anymore. It's that even though we do rebel, our Savior remains faithful. The promises of God don't depend upon us. They depend on God. And we're grateful for that because if they depended on us, we'd be in a heap, a massive pile of trouble that would be insurmountable. But you give your word, you fulfill your word, for that we're grateful. Now bless as we sing your praises and we um, take of the supper, of the bread and of the, of the cup. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.